So we're finishing up a series that we've called uh, The Pursuit of God and just kind of looking at the whole idea of leaning hard into God and taking responsibility for our faith, for discipleship, and that in some sense it's, a, it's really a choice to respond to the call that's out there, uh, the call that Christ gives us to discipleship, the call that, that God puts out there for all of us to respond to him. Uh, as it says in James, if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. And so we've kind of gone into this series and we've talked a lot about prayer. And we talked last week just about contentment and godly happiness. And I wanted to finish by talking about a subject that uh, is maybe less positive or, or less uh, energetic than happiness. Um, but I think it's as important as any subject that we can deal with and it's that of doubt. And... Uh, Doubt is a fascinating thing, and, and we could do a whole series on doubt. It might be a pretty depressing series, <laughs> six weeks, eight weeks, um, the year of doubt. That'd be kind of interesting. Um, but we could do a whole series on doubt. Uh, I taught a class at Killens College a couple years ago called uh, The History and Philosophy of Atheism. And you could have, in, in some sense, um, titled that class a history of doubt. I mean, that's really what it was. And so um, you could exhaust this subject uh, over many weeks, long classes, and, and we're going to try and ta uh, tackle it in just one sermon. And the first thing I would just want to say is I want to make a distinction between kinds of doubt. Because I really do think there's two different kinds of doubt that, that we talk about. One, which I would call stupid doubt. And stupid doubt is is really doubting for the sake of doubting or doubting to be cool or doubting to give yourself license for something. So stupid doubt is not really a response to anything. It's, it's choosing to doubt because doubt itself is desirable. Does that make sense? Stupid doubt posits doubt itself as desirable. Uh, Dallas Willard wrote this. He said, for centuries now, our culture has cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than one who believes. You can be almost as stupid as a cabbage as long as you doubt. Um, now, I think there's something culturally true about that kind of take on doubt. And that for a lot of people in society, it really comes down to if you doubt, it's its own justification. If you doubt, you must be smart. If you doubt, uh, you must be taking things seriously. And, and uh, I find that to just be problematic because we can never really get at what doubt is supposed to be about, which is, which is faith or belief, and really weigh out uh, the object of faith. Hey, uh, is Kit back there somewhere? No? Is anybody back there? Is he, is he right there? He stepped out. Could somebody get me a bottle of water? Thank you. Um, so if, uh, if you think with me here, stupid doubt really desires to remain where it is, and it doesn't want to go anywhere. And so talking about it or, or wrestling with somebody that believes kind of stupid doubt just doesn't get you anywhere. And that's not what I want to talk about this morning. What I want to talk about this morning is honest doubt, the second kind of doubt. An honest doubt if we were to draw it, it has two different kind of positions that, that it lands into. The first one would be prior to belief in God. And that's kind of your atheist or agnostic, somebody who's really intellectually struggling with the proposition of whether God exists or not. And so they're kind of looking ahead saying, I'm trying to find a way to land on this kind of proposition that there is a God and there is faith. Thank you. The second kind is when somebody who has believe, believes uh, gets bumped from that belief or encounters a, a season where, where God is not very close or very near. God is in some sense hidden and they're coming off the back of this and kind of dealing with uh, the, the loss of God or 
the loss of the nearness of God or not feeling the intimacy of God and then beginning to wrestle existentially with what that means. Did God really exist? Is there really God? Or does the Christian God really exist? Or did I ever know God in the first place? But it really begins to take on a different kind of look. And that's kind of the doubt that most Christians, if you've come to church, begin to struggle with um, when you face suffering and challenges. And so there's two kind of seasons of doubt here. There's one before experience of God, and then the other one dealing with the challenges in your experience with God. So there's stupid doubt, there's honest doubt, and I honestly um, feel that when we're talking about doubt with most people, it's, it's of this variety. It's that people honestly, in response to the human condition, struggle with feeling like God really exists or that God really is close. Um, it's, it's something that we kind of hide because I think when we really are dealing with honest doubt, we're not really proud of it. You know what I'm talking about? Um, stupid doubt, you wear a t-shirt. It's like, <laughs> I don't believe. Take that. Um, honest doubt, it, you kind of hide it, don't you? Um, you hide it from friends and you hide it from family. You hide it from your kids when they ask you questions and you, you find yourself answering as if you believe it with certainty. But in your gut, you kind of go, I, I don't... I don't know that I'm as confident as my words would convey that I am. I was with a group of pastors one time, and it was about um, nine or ten pastors, and we were in a circle, and we'd been there for hours talking about some deep things, and we kind of took a break, and we're just going around, and the question was posed, what are you afraid of? And it gets to one pastor in the room who is rather well-known, and so all of the other pastors kind of look up to this individual, and it gets to him, and he says in answer to that question he says I just really hope that it that it's all true like I hope that someday like I don't find out that it just it wasn't it wasn't true and then he just kind of stops right and all these pastors were you weren't supposed to say that like you know you were <laughs> you know be afraid of the dark or be afraid of somebody breaking into your house and stealing something be afraid of the idea that your kids could get hurt when you're not around to protect them, but you, you can't say that, right? Like, what, what am I supposed to say in response to that, you know? And uh, I, I remember just kind of spending the next half hour rolling through in my mind what this pastor had said and coming to, to believe and to, um, and to find that there was something really authentic about his confession of doubt. Now, he obviously believes in, in God, and he believes in what he's doing. He preaches it every week. But I think he was just trying to be honest that on his, wor on his worst days, laying in bed by himself, that there are moments of doubt. It's part of a human condition. So if you'll turn with me, I want to look at a verse that I think kind of just is the, the overarching thought of this message. And it's in Jude. So Jude is the second to last book of the Bible. It's a small book. If you haven't read it recently, you should. It's, it's kind of a, a fun little book to read. It doesn't take very long. But it, Jude says this, and so he's writing and he's imploring and he doesn't have much space. I mean, you can almost, when you're reading it, sense the emotion and the passion that, that shows up in this book. But when he gets toward the end, he says this, Jude 1, 22. He says, be merciful to those who doubt. Be merciful to those who doubt. He goes on and says, snatch others from the fire and save them. So it's not, it's not just a passive thing. Hey, if people have, have doubts, just be okay with it. Be gracious with it. Be uh, tolerant of it. That's not the idea at all that it's this disengaged, kind of dispassionate thing because he's, he's talking about this um, need to reach out and to help people and to save people. And in that context, he says, be merciful to those who doubt. So when someone says, you know, at the end of the day, my biggest fear is, is wondering whether all this is true or not, right? Like when you hear that or when you see somebody who's dealing with suffering and, and you kind of know that they're really struggling with their faith, whether God really exists or loves them or is willing to enter into their, 
their kind of story or narrative and fix things or change things, whether God actually hears prayers or answers prayers. And when you begin to see that, it's not as if it's a Job situation and we kind of um, critique or judge those who doubt or make fun of those who doubt or you know, steer clear of those who doubt or keep your kids away from those who doubt. It's, it's none of that. It's this real kind of um, amazing thing. Be merciful. Be merciful. Why? Because it's a part of the human condition. It deserves mercy just like when somebody is poor, it deserves mercy. Or when somebody is vulnerable, it deserves mercy. When somebody is being oppressed, it deserves action but also mercy because that ought not be where people are at, but people do find themselves there. And so the same thing is true in terms of a poverty of spirit or or spiritual things that when people are dealing with that, we're merciful toward it. Recognizing in some sense that we too could be there or someday might be there, and so we respond to it with mercy. So here's three things I would say when we're dealing with doubt or in response to doubt. So when you're in a season of doubt, the first thing would be this. Do what you know. Don't stop. So do what you know and don't stop. It's a human reaction that when we're a bit insecure or things are a bit confusing or a bit foggy, um, we slow down, right? When you're driving your car and all of a sudden you hit the patch of fog, you slow down. You try and regain stability and control by slowing down. And I think when we we hit a season of doubt, the, the natural thing to do is to slow down and to kind of stop and wait until we get clarity so that we can move forward. And I think one of, the, uh, one of the main things that we should recognize with the life of faith is that there are going to be times of confusion, but that, that, that doesn't mean we stop doing the things that we know. You don't stop doing the things you know you're supposed to do because of doubt or confusion in other areas of life. And so sometimes what takes you through a foggy patch or a rough patch or if you hit uh, water and it slows the car down, is by continuing with your momentum and getting to the other side. And so not stopping, but continuing on with what you do. Another part of this is simply the idea that when we begin to doubt, we can often find ourselves becoming okay with disobedience. Doubt is a is an unbelievable, uh, unbelievably powerful excuse for sin. I mean, I, uh, I, I, I feel like I got a lot of degrees when I was an undergrad. Only one of them was academic. Um, but I learned a lot of things when you're, you're hanging out in a kind of social environment day in and day out and you're watching people. And it's unbelievable when you see people that have faith and they begin to doubt, it's like everything they, they always wanted to do or had, had uh, convinced themselves they couldn't do, the minute they doubted, it was as if that was license to take on and to do whatever disobedience had kind of been um, piling up at the door. And I think one of the things we have to realize is when we're doubting or when we're in a season of doubt or when you have a friend that's doubting, that one of the worst things you can do is to start sinning. One of the worst things you can do when you're doubting is to start sinning. It's as if when you have cancer, saying, now that I have cancer, let me go ahead and start eating really bad too. And let me just start pumping you know, drugs, recreational drugs into my body because you know, it's already bad. Let me just go ahead and make it worse. And, and that's the logic behind sinning if you're already doubting. It's taking a, a bad situation where you're hungry for uh, the presence of God You're hungry for God to come alongside you and to be near and to speak to you, to show himself. And instead of leaning into obedience and doing the things you know you ought to do, instead of following, all of a sudden you're doing disobedience, which is on your own running further away from God. And it's adding to one difficult situation, um, circumstances that are only going to make it worse. Yet we find that we do that so readily, that, that we... We want to use those excuses. And I think if we really look at doubt and say doubt is about 
whether God is there. And what we really should be looking at is trying to find God again or reach out to God that will recognize that doing these other things is just going to take us further away from where we want to go. The, uh, the reality is with, with doubt that it comes about as a byproduct. If you, if you think of things going well in your life and this gap is kind of getting closed between um, your sense of experience of God and blessing of God, where, where God is coming closer to you uh, through prayer, through the things you're doing, it builds joy. Joy is the byproduct of blessing, right? When you, when you find the opposite to be true, and this gap is widening, through pain or suffering or unanswered prayer or just a dry season. And when God's blessing is in some sense removed and that gap is widening, the byproduct of that is doubt. One of the natural byproducts is in that stretching season is that you begin to hunger for the nearness of God again. And and when it's not there, you doubt. And so one of the things we have to recognize is that we need to keep doing the things we know we should be doing. Do what you know, don't stop. And disobedience is not a cure for doubt. Second thing is this, broaden the search rather than narrow it. Broaden the search rather than narrow it. It's uh, an interesting thing that if you go out into the outdoors and you're searching for somebody that's lost in the back country or whatever it might be, um, you want a large search area. And when you search a certain sector of the grid and you don't find the person there, you move on from that, that, uh, that sector and you continue to broaden out and look for them where they might be because you've already identified they're not here. Something really interesting happens when we feel that we're losing a sense of, of God in our life, the, the closeness of God, that we begin to dial in and focus rather than step back and broaden out. What does that mean? What it means is if you're asking a question and God's not answering that question, or if there's a struggle in your life and you feel like it's causing you to doubt and you can't fix it yourself and you're asking God to fix that situation, or if you have uh, an instance of, of pain or suffering and you just need God to answer you as to why this is here, this is kind of the, the Job situation, um, we tend to get hung up on that one thing, and then we don't let it go. There's a study done by Bees, this is back in Philosophy of Mind, where um, they study and explore consciousness, basically what is consciousness, how does it work, uh, how does uh, free will work, and there's this experiment done with Bees, kind of to show, you know, trying to figure out at what point the cognitive abilities kind of change and adapt from just natural instinct. And these bees would bring things, they would kind of set it somewhere, and then they would go on to kind of the next chore. And what the study was doing was taking, the bees would, would set the thing where it was supposed to be, and then somehow they would move it. And the bee would move it back, and then they would move it again, and the bee would move it back, and the, nothing would ever change. The bee would just be kind of stuck in this cycle Um, of having to address this situation. Does that make sense? I think that's kind of the way we are when we get locked into an issue that we think God needs to resolve. Um, We're not going to move on until it is resolved. And when we doubt, what we have to realize is if we're not finding an answer in this situation or if God's not speaking to us um, in this spot, that we need to broaden the search area. And we need to step back and we need to relocate. We need to look in some other places, ask some different questions, and be willing to let God show himself to us other than that one little thing like the bee that we just can't get off of. And so the second thing I would just say with regard to doubt is just broaden the search rather than narrow it. God exists in more places than the one problem it is that you're kind of holding on to or wrestling God exists in more places than just your problems. And so if you, in some sense, ask the questions that God is answering, sometimes it's a lot easier to sense that God is there and in conversation with you. What I mean by that is, 
Um, I think God is always speaking to us in different ways. It doesn't mean that uh, he's never hidden, because I think one of the challenges we find is that God does remove himself sometimes, and, and he is hidden. Um, but the heavens speak to us on behalf of God. They declare God's glory. I mean, there's, there is speech and there is knowledge in so many different places, and sometimes we have to ask the questions that are already being answered as a way of beginning to get movement in that dialogue with God uh, or about spiritual things that are going on in our life. And so asking the questions that God is already answering. The third thing I would say is remember the Psalms. So if you turn to Psalm 69, we could have taken and looked at dozens of Psalms. But there's a formula to the the book of Psalms. There's a kind of a pattern that we begin to see, which is really fascinating, that David, as he kind of writes out these prayers, and you can picture kind of this person in, in solitude and wrestling with spiritual things and then writing them to song as an artist would, that the emotions in some sense are flowing out this way. I was with somebody yesterday at a wedding who's a, a Greek scholar, and we were talking about the word for prayer. Uh, the English word for prayer is really interesting. It's, um, it just means to petition or to ask for, right, or to demand. And I think there's something really interesting is that we, we live up into that etymology. What that word means is kind of how we tend to take prayer. We, we tend to come to God and it's, here's my list of things that I'm asking for. Here's my demands, if you will. Here are the things I'm begging you for. But it becomes incredibly transactional and our focus um, begins to be really centered on what it is we need or we're, we're kind of expecting God to give to us. And so what I was talking to this guy about was um, the Greek word here, what is the sense of the Greek word? And it shares a lot with kind of this, uh, um, yeah, I'm not even going to remember what the word was. It's pros, you, something. And, uh, you know, the etymology of that word is, you know, the, the prefix pros is to and toward. And then the U, the E-U, begins with like um, this idea of good things. So, Euangelion is, is the word for gospel. It begins the same way. And, and so it still has this sense of, of asking or, or going to and, and making a request. It has a different kind of connotation. But then the bigger issue is not just the etymology of the Greek word, but it's the way that prayer shows up in Scripture. So context is always, in some sense, how we define and determine what words mean, right? How they're used in context. And prayer is an amazing thing when, when we see how Jesus goes and prays and he goes and spends a night on a hill multiple times and he's not just giving his three things to God that he needs. He's, he's having a conversation. Prayer for Jesus was so radically unique and so radically different than in some ways the way other people would pray around him that his disciples were looking at that and these were Jewish boys that had been taught how to pray and they're looking at that and they're saying, teach us how to pray like you pray. What does that look like? What are you doing with God that's so conversational? Help, help me understand that. Um, Paul even talks about uh, don't be anxious about anything. Like when you are stressed, when you are feeling pulled and there are doubts, don't be anxious about anything, but take those things and present your requests to God. So that, there's the request part, right? And if you do this, what does it then say? that God will give you all the things you request for? It says, no, then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds. And so the idea here is there's something unique about prayer that's not just about the request, it's about the conversation and what can happen in some sense spiritually from the conversation. So the context that, that the word prayer is being used in, in in Scripture and all these places really shows us that it's not just about a transaction with regard to our circumstances or our needs. But there's something really deep going on whereby we are encountering God and God literally can change our makeup and satisfy and quell our, our anxieties and he can draw close to us in that and chase away our doubts even to the degree that we have peace and, and our hearts and our minds are guarded um, as we are close to God and not out kind of being tossed around. So prayer is this amazing thing. It's when we get to the Psalms, we get David showing us that he, in some sense, 
understood this aspect of prayer, that it's a conversational um, reality, that we wrestle out our emotions in prayer with God. Prayer is the wrestling out of our emotions in conversation with God. And so here's David in Psalm 69, and it fits a typical pattern because there are no two psalms that are exactly alike, but the pattern is very similar in that somebody who is uh, wrestling out their emotions in conversation with God always begins with the first person experience that, that here is my reality, God, here is where I'm starting from, here is the stress or the fear or the tension, and he puts that out, and he begins here in Psalm 69 saying, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. It's in scripture that sometimes we feel like we're drowning. I mean, that's a spiritual reality that we can pray and that we can claim, and then it says, verse 2, I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold and I have come into the deep waters and the floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. And so you begin to get this sense of the hiddenness of God or what it looks like when we feel isolated and alone and lonely. And so my eyes are failing looking for my God. It's not that I don't desire God. It's not that I'm willing to invest into it. But as I am doing this and laboring on it, I am not quite finding the satisfaction that I'm looking for. I'm not quite experiencing God to the degree that, that I'm hungry for. My eyes fail looking for my God. Verse 4, those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. There's an injustice going on, which if anything gets to our gut level, that, that sense of injustice or something not being fair or equitable, and I'm forced to re restore what I did not steal. You know my folly, O oh God. My guilt is not hidden from you. May those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me, O oh Lord, the Lord Almighty. May those who seek you not be put to shame because of me, O God of Israel, for I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my own mother's sons, for zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn, and when I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of drunkards. So what's going on here? It starts with felt experience. I'm drowning. I am drowning. I'm being engulfed. The waves are buffeting me. There's no way out. The second thing is, God, um, my situation and the circumstances I'm in, may that not negatively affect somebody else. May it not negatively affect you because the realities that I'm living up into are, are so difficult and so challenging and, and they really are, are leading to this abuse on me, but let that not affect somebody else. By the way, you, you see a messianic prophecy in here with zeal for the house um, and Jesus' passion for the temple of the Lord. And then it continues on. Let's just skip down to verse 18. Ah, verse 17. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Redeem me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed, and all my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. Let's skip down to verse 30. Verse 30. I will praise God. God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hoofs. In other words, praising God and glorifying him with my thanksgiving is going to be so much better than the offerings that I bring. So this will please God more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hoofs. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. 
Let heaven and earth praise him. Let the seas and all that move in them, for God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. The people will settle there and possess it, and the children of its servants will inherit it. And those who love his name will dwell there. So what's going on at the end of this psalm? What's going on at the end of the psalm is that everything David tends to write resolves itself not in the resolution of his difficulty, right? But in the decision of his praise. Not in the resolution of his difficulty, but in the decision of his praise. That in the midst of that difficulty, in the midst of being in this kind of suffering, first person felt experience of pain, of injustice, that in the middle of that, he is going to somehow ground himself in the reality that God exists and in the character of God, that God really is good. And so he's going to reach out and say, this now anchors me. Whether I'm experiencing it right now in my trial or not, I'm going to reach out and I'm going to anchor myself in the truths of God. I'm going to have faith. So faith is going to be my choice in how I respond to suffering and to pain and in some sense even the hiddenness of God. I'm going to respond in faith, and through that, I'm going to choose to worship and choose to remember and choose to give thanks because even if I'm not experiencing it right now, it doesn't change the fact that God has saved and God will save, that God has redeemed his people and someday, once again, will redeem his people. And so the psalmist always tends to come back around to anchoring his song, his heart cry, his his wrestling of emotions, in this reality of a God who does hear our cries and, and will in some way answer. And so this third thing about reading the Psalms or remembering the Psalms is also the discipline of remembrance. And the discipline of remembrance, notice this, is synonymous with the discipline of praise. When we praise God, what are we praising? Are we praising our circumstances? Or are we praising someone who stands outside of our circumstances? Does that mean, I mean, when we come here and sing, are we only coming and singing because there's joy that's filling us because uh, there was a bank error in our favor yesterday? Uh, or the weather was beautiful? Or whatever it is, and we're going to show up and that is what we're going to praise, is basically let the overflow of our joy come out because I feel good. I'm experiencing some sense of pleasure. Is that what praise is? Or when we come here, whether we're filled with joy or whether we're desperate, I mean, just desperate. I remember there was a, the song, um, I'm Desperate For You. What was that song? Breathe. What was it called, Breathe. I'm not going to sing it. It's in, I'm singing it in my head right now, and I'm, I'm exercising wisdom not to actually <laughs> sing it. But I remember it was a really funny thing when that song came out. There was like a debate about that song. It was too emotional for a lot of people. And, and so there was a, friends of mine that were in churches that were very doctrinal and, and very focused this way, and they're saying, that song is just... It's kind of just gobbledygook. It's all just emotion of my desperation. And that's not really what we should be doing in song. We should, we should be singing theology and doctrine. And, and I remember saying to, to those people, but aren't the Psalms themselves declarations of uh, desperation? If we can't come into the presence of God in desperation, then, then where are we going to take our desperation if we can't go to the Savior when we need to be saved and feel that, where else are we going to go with our need to be saved and kind of pour that out? Does that make sense? I remember that. I just like, I like that song because I found something true about it. But in our desperation and we come and we're, we're singing that desperation, what are we really praising? What is that act of praise? That act of praise is one of declaring who God is and the truths about God, focusing our minds on them, singing them, reciting them, rehearsing them, and ultimately saying, I'm going to give you the thanks, 
I'm going to give you worship. I'm going to declare that you're worthy, God. I'm going to give you the glory because those things are true even if right now I'm still feeling desperate. Even if I'm going to leave still feeling desperate, I'm going to give you that praise and somehow in doing that, I'm going to sense that I'm, I'm, I'm anchoring myself in to you, the only place that I ultimately can find salvation and that kind of rescue. And so I'm going to get this kind of peace even if my circumstances leave me desperate and I'm going to give you the glory because that's what worship really is, what praise is. So remembering the Psalms is a lot like the discipline of remembrance. And the discipline of remembrance is really synonymous with the discipline of praise. Does that make sense? So I would argue simply by the fact that all these psalms are in the middle of our Bible, that God intends for us to understand that as our praise goes, so goes our faith. That as our praise goes, so goes our faith. That to some degree, I, I don't want to be, I want to be very careful. There's a, there's a lot of doubts, and, and doubts can manifest in so many different ways, and we, we're supposed to be merciful to people who are doubting, or if I'm doubting, or we're doubting, or whatever it is. So we, we don't want to paint things into a corner or make too broad of generalizations, right? Okay? But having said that, faith sometimes begets faith, and doubt sometimes begets doubt. And the discipline of praise sometimes is what's needed to grow faith. And the absence of praise is sometimes a part of nurturing or allowing doubt to continue to grow up in our hearts. Does that make sense? Our sense of peace and our sense of anxiety are tied to prayer. Don't be anxious about anything. But with prayer and, and petition, present your request to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds. So somehow our anxiety, our peace, our sense of peace, and prayer, or praise, or the discipline of remembrance are all somehow connected. And so the third thing, like I said, when we're doubting, is the discipline of remembering the Psalms, the discipline of remembering itself, that of, of days gone by, God has done this in my life. I've seen what he's done in the church. I've seen what he's done in other people's lives. I, I know that the Bible is always wanting me to go back and look at those touchstones. Taking communion is in some sense a looking back and saying this is what God did to save us through a, uh, the sacrificial lamb that died that we might live and that that is going to run its course so that someday I can come in and be uh, located with, no longer having to reach out for, but located with um, my God. And so we look back so that we can look forward. We remember so that we can have hope in the future. And this is an incredibly important thing. It's a discipline. So um, I want to make a comment here about baptism, and we're going to end really early today. Um, we're talking about communion being, in some sense, the Passover symbol that we're looking back that Jesus said when, when you do this, when you take the Passover meal, this thing that was a part of the Jewish culture and it's so highly symbolic that when you do this now from here on uh, forward, you're really doing it looking back to me. You're not looking all the way back to Egypt uh, when God led people out of Egypt into the desert and ultimately the promised land. You're looking to me because I'm the one that now sets you free and brings you into your promised land, your, your spiritual rest uh, your Sabbath period. I mean, it's I'm the one that saves. And that's one of the, the symbols of our faith. And there's another one, and it's baptism. And so tonight, we're doing this potluck, and we're having this baptism service. And we do it once a year, and it's kind of a, a, a very symbolic thing in, in the Deschutes River. Uh, back in the early church, they said if you're, if you're going to do baptisms, the, the best place was in um, with moving water. I mean, it's kind of fun to do that in the Deschutes, to get baptized in nature. Um, but we, we have this baptism, and I think there's something really interesting that happens in America with regard to our Christian faith. We can take so many things 
very casually. We can take so many things very casually. And if we take our faith very casually with some things, the tendency will be that we'll take our faith casually with all things. If we take our faith casually with some things, especially the hard things, especially the things where where God would call us to obedience, if we take it casually here, the tendency would be that we would take it casually everywhere. And so I think that baptism is an interesting thing because we know it's in the Bible. We talk about it. We have whole denominations called, you know, Baptists, right? Uh, And so it kind of hangs there. It's this thing that we're commanded to do in some sense, in obedience to what Jesus himself did. And it's the symbol of people being set apart and considered holy. So in the Old Testament, you had these three categories. You had unclean, which is like dirty dishes. You had clean, which is like clean dishes. And then you had holy, which is taking something that's clean, and you're setting it apart to be used in the temple, signifying that it it belongs to God now. The word holy actually means set apart, like set apart unto God. Uh, The Greek for holy, the the adjective, um, the noun is saints. So saints and holy, it's, it's the same sense of the word here. So those that are holy, set apart unto God, are who we call saints. Does that make sense? Okay. So in the Old Testament, you have this three kind of, Um, these three categories of unclean and clean and then what is set apart specifically for God and this is holy. And so in the Old Testament, when you go from clean to holy, there's always some kind of symbolic ritual that happens that marks it off as being um, something that is now holy belonging to God. If something is really important and going to be set aside, we we tend to know that it always has some kind of... uh, some kind of symbol that goes with it. At this wedding I was at yesterday, we talked about rings. You know, there's, there's a covenant being made here. And these people are now walking out different than they walked in. And so they're, in some sense, being set apart for themselves. And in a Christian wedding, this, this marriage is being set apart unto God, asking for his blessing. And so what symbolizes that? Like, what is the token of that? And so in the Old Testament, it was a sprinkling It was a ceremonial or ritual washing, if you will. Does that make sense? And so this is is what transpires in in the Old Testament. You kind of get to the New Testament. So what happens now with somebody who is setting themselves apart to God, saying that they've been washed and made clean spiritually, and that there's a newness of life that's come into them because of this relationship with Christ? When we accept kind of that covenantal blessing of, of grace, when we accept this good news, when we are willing to trade everything for this one thing, when we're willing to die to ourselves so that we might live with Christ, when this happens and we literally are going to say we're set apart unto God, he considered us, considers us holy now, we're, we're one of the saints, which is an awkward thought. What is the symbol that marks that off? And that symbol in the New Testament is baptism. It symbolizes the washing, uh, the water and the washing and the cleansing. And Paul speaks in Romans and other places about it symbolizing the death to self and then the being raised up again, uh, in some sense being resurrected with Christ into that new life. But this baptism serves as the symbol or the ritual act that marks the transition from clean to holy or, or being set apart unto God. It's a big deal. And to the degree that we don't take the symbol that serious, in some sense, we're not taking the reality that serious. Does that make sense? Um, it's, it was really hard uh, when I first started wearing a wedding ring, it, my finger wouldn't work. Like, I would go to type, and it, and it just wouldn't, like, it wouldn't go. Take the ring off, no problem, put it on, and I can't, I can't type. It's really, uh, it's really weird. You guys are looking at me like I'm really weird. Um, so I would take my ring off a lot, and that's actually how I lost my first wedding ring. 
This is a $10 copy I got at a Renaissance, um, a Renaissance fair in Wittenberg, Germany on Reformation Sunday. It was like $10 and I needed a replacement because um, my other one got thrown away by one of my kids when she was that big um, because daddy took it off because when I get home, I, I take it off. When we first got married and I realized like my finger wouldn't work and I do a lot of typing, I had my ring off for a couple weeks and there was a picture taken of Tamara and I and that picture made its way, Tamara's from Prineville, that picture made its way to Prineville and somehow someone noticed in that picture that I didn't have my wedding ring on and in Prineville, <laughs> um, they, take, they take a lot of things very serious in Prineville. And it, and it created this huge firestorm. And I'm a city boy already, so that's like nine out of ten strikes uh, right off the bat. Uh, when, when we were, the day we got engaged, we were out, we were up in, in the Ochicos. I, I came to ask her parents his blessing, and we all went up into the, the hills, and we were shooting shotguns, and, and, th- and then I proposed, right? But I had never been through gun safety, and so I discharged. Uh, I shot the clay pigeons. I was really proud of myself because I was showing well in front of her family, and so I, I, was, I was really excited. So I swung around to get more cartridges, right? Um, thinking they were going to be really impressed with, with me. And everybody started diving, you know, in different directions. And they're like, you never pointing. And I'm like, but it's empty. And they're like, you, you haven't been through gun safety, have you? And, no, I haven't. Um, and I'm only getting weirder now. Um, so the picture in Prineville, in, in Prine, I'm, I'm talking about these things because I'm actually in therapy for Prineville issues. The... Uh, um, but it really meant a lot to some people that my ring wasn't on because the ring was, was seen as being incredibly important. Tamara's dad, I think, went 30 years without ever taking his ring off. Um, and there's something about the symbol um, that really matters. So that's why we had this one engraved, even though it was only $10. There's like engraving on the inside. And I floated the river this week and thought I'd lost it. And it freaked me out. Because even though it was only $10, like, it's important to me, you know. But the symbol speaks to the thing underneath it. We kind of all know that. That's why a bunch of women from Primal got mad at me, right? So baptism, I think, is one of those things that culturally has, has become really easy to treat casually. Why? Well, because... Is God really going to turn me down from coming to heaven because I didn't get baptized? Well, no, it's not like it's necessary for salvation. That's what we teach in the church is that you're saved by faith through grace um, and, and that, that baptism is an outward sign of what's kind of going on internally. But, but it's not like it's necessary to be saved. That's what we teach. So, well, if it's not necessary and it's kind of awkward well, then why would I do it? Does that make sense? And I, I guess what I would just say here is the awkwardness of it is what makes it a good symbol. The awkwardness of baptism is what makes it a very good public symbol. If it was so normal that everybody did it, whether they're religious or not. It was like just a normal part of life. It's just something you kind of do. It's, it's not really that far out of step with culture or, or whatnot. If it, was, if it was normal, it wouldn't really be a great symbol, would it? So the fact that it's not normal, which is what makes it a bit awkward, is what makes it a really good symbol that publicly here, these people are seeing that I am... Uh, connecting myself with a 2,000-year-old tradition of, of being baptized as a Christian, as somebody who is saying publicly, I follow Christ. I look to Jesus for the source of my salvation, not to anything else. This is where my life is located, and this is where I take my order, whatever you want to say, right? But this is, this is the declaration that I 
am set apart to God. I belong to him. I want to belong to him. I want to come in and praise him. I'm, I'm a Christian. And so I've been marked that way. I, I've had this, this ceremonial or ritual washing. I've had that rite, that, that kind of rite of passage, that act done to me. It, it's supposed to be awkward. The awkwardness is part of the symbol. It's, it's part of what gives it its power. And so we tend to take things very casually. I think we tend to take baptism very casually. And we're doing this baptism tonight. And I just am kind of wanting to say this is an opportunity for you if you've never been baptized or if you've kind of toyed with the idea but it's like, eh, I don't know, I'm just not feeling it. It's cold, there's people watching. It's a bit awkward that this is an opportunity for you to be baptized with your church community, watching in a public place. This is an opportunity for you to point to a symbol that says something transpired and that something is a really big deal. And the symbolism matters because the thing matters. And so if you want to get baptized tonight at the end of the service, I'm going to be standing right down there. We're kind of going through the instructions, uh, what to wear, what to expect, kind of all those things. And if you would like to be baptized and just say, you know what, you're right, like this is an opportunity, come find us down there and we would love to, to have you join tonight as we kind of do the baptism service. Well, let's go ahead and, and uh, close in prayer. And we're going to take the offering in just a moment um, during special music. It's a popcorn bucket. It'll come around just so you know what's coming. And no, you don't have to put anything in there. And yes, we would love it if you would fill out that comment card Tell us that you're here. We had 70, did Kip wave them at you? Did you remember to do that? Like 80 cards last week, and, and uh, I just rounded up because I started with 70, but it was high 70s, 80. And um, it made our week as a staff. There was more interaction that happened between the staff and people in the church this week than I think any other week I can remember because it all began through that conversation using those cards, needs, offers to help, etc. So if you can, when the popcorn bucket comes around, we'd love to have those cards in there. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would remember to praise, that we would remember, even if we don't feel it right now, that we would remember the truth of your goodness, that your character is fixed. I pray that you would help us with those disciplines to keep doing the things of faith even when our faith feels weak to keep the momentum up, to, to press hard into you. I pray that those of us that are struggling with things of disobedience, thinking that somehow the response to doubt is to go find something else that will satisfy, I just pray that you would convict. And we know that you're merciful to those who doubt. So I pray in that you would affirm and encourage and nurture us in the, the way that we should go, that that we might find you. So I just pray for that, Father, that you would continue to deal gently with us as we grow in our faith and our desire to love and be loved by you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.